we're, we've been looking at First Kings the last several weeks, and I guess the last two weeks, this is week three, and we're beginning to just kind of see some leadership things, and there's going to be a lot that we're going to see in this book, and I, I pray that the application is beginning to bless you. If you remember where we ended last week, we ended chapter two, and the, as what we looked at was Solomon, his, uh, his, his leadership being established as the new king, and he had to carry out some, some decisions and make some changes that were key to setting up or establishing him as a man who could operate wisely as king as his father had charged him. The last thing we saw him do was put Shimei on house arrest. Y'all remember that? Um, because he was wicked, but Shimei had two of his slaves ran away. Y'all remember that? And so he left, broke house arrest, went to Gad and brought them back. And then the king was told and the king had him put to death. And it's very interesting. I didn't even think about it until today, preparing for chapter three, that these two guys ran away. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 15, plus the year of release every seven years that they have in Israel, it would have been better for them to just stay and finish their, their seven years out. You know, plus Deuteronomy says, if you have a good master, you might want to stay with him. But if not, he's got to send you out liberally. You remember that? He's got to give you provision and all of that kind of stuff. These two dudes running away gives us indication that Shimei was just a bad dude all the way around anyway. And so uh, he, broke, he broke the rule. He was put to death. And that was the last thing that we saw that Solomon had to carry out. But he dealt with several people. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to it. Several key things that his father had given him instructions to deal with them, but you do it according to your wisdom. And I like that from David's perspective. David realizing that his son is a man. His son has been chosen to be king. And so he's going to have to operate within his own wisdom to be able to specifically carry out those duties. And I really like that. Um, one of the things I like to um, apply within leadership here is that I don't want to be a micromanager. When there is an overseer and then a ministry leader and they're functioning, they have authority to function within the wisdom that God gives them within that role. Um, and they come to me in matters that they might need to discuss. They keep me abreast of things that are going on, but I don't want to be involved in everything that they have to do because according to um, Jethro from the Old Testament, y'all know who I'm talking about? Or what we see in Acts chapter 6, that would be detrimental to my ability to be a pastor and it would actually hinder the church. I've, I've, I've got a chance to visit a lot of churches, not a lot of churches, but guest speak at a lot of churches, be involved at conferences and stuff like that. And, and sometimes it's interesting when you see a leader, a pastor who is so heavily involved in everything, you begin to see where, you know, others are not able to. And so the growth can't happen. Does that make sense? So when you, when you learn how to allow a leader to use wisdom, you actually strengthen the leader. The leader is flourishing now, and, and it just creates an environment for more things to happen, you know. Um, and that's the beauty of it. So you kind of got to – the church is an, is an institution that can't be controlled, if, is what I'm trying to say. And when you allow a little room, stuff happens. It's crazy. You read the book of Acts, stuff was just happening. They didn't know what they were doing. They would just pray, seek the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then, and then operate accordingly. So it's a healthy environment when, when um, leaders are able to operate within the wisdom that God has given them to, to a degree. And so we've seen that. But as we turn now to chapter 3, in chapter 3, we're going to begin to see this new leader, this king, 
demonstrate his foreign policy, but we see it's not in keeping with a biblical worldview. Does that make sense? We're going to see it's foreign policy, but we're going to see it's not in keeping with a biblical worldview. We're also going to see that some of his personal issues drive some of his, his decisions, which are later going to come back to, to be destructive for him. Um, y'all know the story of Solomon. So we'll see this. It's very important that we look at it. Verse 1, if you're there with me, please say amen. amen. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter, Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. And so, Father, as we approach this text that you put before us tonight, Lord, I pray that you would open it up to us, that you would open our hearts and minds to be able to receive it. And Lord, as always, I ask that you would just remove all of the distractions, all of the hindrances, all of the meddling of the enemy, that you would give us a free zone, a safe place, Lord, that we can sit before you, hear what you have to say unhindered. Lord, I pray that you would have your work in our own hearts and that you would strengthen us and prepare us for the rest of the week that's ahead of us, Lord. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. And so as we look at this Solomon, his foreign policy first begins with him making a treaty or even, if you will, an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And at this point, Egypt is not as strong as they used to be, but they're still a, a, a powerful nation in a sense. And they are a nation that is and has always been antagonistic against Israel and a threat to Israel. In fact, if you go back to the book of Egypt, they are a type. Egypt is a type of the book of Exodus, a type of the world. Um, and this is where God had led them out of their slavery from. We know that. And so in Mary and Pharaoh's daughter, in some way, Solomon made a wise move from a secular standpoint. It's wise because what he did was he secured peace with one of Israel's largest threats. Um, Pharaoh would never seek to invade or go to war with Israel because it would risk the life of his daughter. So it makes sense. And this is, this is kind of foreign policy. This was kind of uh, uh, what nations back then would do. If you, you intermarried, you kind of make peace and wars off the table. And for a season, we have peace. But it was also equally wise on Pharaoh's part to do this because for the same reason, obviously, plus he may upon visiting, you know, the family visits. You know how it is. You got to go see the (laughs) in-laws. So maybe in those visits, he would be able to, or maybe his wife would be able to gather information about Israel's secrets and things that they were doing um, to be able to have an upper hand or at least have information and keep tabs, if you will, on what Solomon was up to. So this foreign policy of Solomon poses a level of national security 
uh, issues for Israel. Make sense? And so technically, this new wife of Solomon's would or should have an undercover Israeli secret service agent monitoring her at all times. That's the way I would have done it. <laughs> um, but this is what Solomon is doing in his foreign policy. He's making this alliance. And so to some degree, we can see the wisdom there in doing that, uh, maybe because he needs time to get his, his, um, his kingship established and kind of get a handle on his, his, his army and his forces. And, and, and having this peace would be a good thing in the near future. But I think there's more cooking um, and more going on than what we may even realize. Um, what we know is that this is probably not Solomon's first marriage. Not to go into it in detail, you can write it down, look at it in your own time. First Kings 14, 21 tells us that his son Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came to the throne when he was 41 years old. First Kings eleven forty two tells us that Solomon reigned for 40 years. So therefore, if this is the first year of his reign and he reigns for 40 years, but his son Jeroboam is 41 when he goes to the throne. So Solomon has already been married and has a son, it would seem, looking at, at the scriptures at this point. So he already has one wife. Now he's taken to himself another wife. And the issues won't end there, um, as we're going to find out. Uh, that Solomon has just overall issues. And, and I, I kind of I want to take you there now. Y'all mind turning with me for a minute? If you turn over to 1 Kings 11 really quick, just a few pages to the right. Solomon is one of those guys that has issues and his issues never get checked. You know, one of the things in, in premarital discipleship you know, obviously we want two people that are walking with the Lord. It needs to be that way. Um, sexual immorality before marriage, um, having this over, uh, this appetite that can't be satisfied never goes well within a marriage. And in chapter 11, I'm going to read uh, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read nine verses. Check this out. It says, but Solomon loved, notice this, many foreign women. That's a big problem. First of all, Solomon loved many Many is a problem. <laughs> I love the fact that um, in the New Testament, you know, Paul exhorts us that, uh, uh, you know, a godly man, particular one who will be a leader within the body, needs to be the husband of one wife. Amen. We know that. And never, even in the Old Testament, it just never goes well. It didn't go well for Abraham. It never goes well. It didn't go well for Jacob. Y'all remember those stories? It was always complications because there was, there was more than one. So the first problem is he loved many, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll do this in chapter 11. But, but not only many, they were foreign. So the other issue is he was unequally yoked with all of them because he's going to start off well, we're going to see. But because he's unequally yoked, eventually something's going to take place. So many foreign women as well as, and it lists the, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. That's the indication right there. She wasn't the first. She was just a part of his collection. He was collecting them. Um, yeah, he didn't. Anyway, so as well as Pharaoh, women of notice the Moabites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. It's not that God didn't want ethnic Jews 
marrying another, you know, if you will, group of people from an ethnic standpoint. God doesn't care about that. God created one man from that one man. He took a woman. And so all men and women who come from are part of that original DNA. So there is no, you know, God doesn't care about all of that. Is everybody good with that? But it's that if they don't worship him and see what happens is what men don't realize, men don't realize is that women um, have a powerful influence over their husbands. And so God says here, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Y'all see that? In other words, God knows if you intermarry with the non-believer thinking you're going to change the non-believer, eventually the non-believer is going to have a negative effect on you. The Bible says Solomon clung to these in love. Solomon was just, he just loved women. He had a, he had a women problem. Um, and so it says, and he had 700 wives, princes and 300 concubines. And here it is, his wives turn away his heart. For it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after their gods. This is where it ended up. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, and he, uh, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and of course she, she's the goddess of sexual immorality, and after Milcom and, and uh, the abomination of the Amorites. We'll talk about that again. Uh, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow uh, the Lord as his father David. Um, and it says, so Solomon built at high places, or excuse me, built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And you can read the rest in your own time. So he begins to build high places for the worship of these foreign gods so his wives could worship their gods in the land and he participated. Y'all follow me? So I guess, you know, in a sense, I would say to the parents while the youth are over there going through the Song of Solomon, I would say to you that, you know, you don't need to go over there in a room with them while they're studying the Song of Solomon. They, they need to have that. They don't need that awkwardness. They let them hear it from somebody else. Because, you know, kids listen to other people sometimes more than they listen to us. <laughs> so let them hear it from Pastor, De Pastor Jeffrey over there. But then you can have conversations with them about it. Like, for instance, eventually he's going to get to chapter two. Chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5 says, the Shulamite woman says to the daughters of, of Jerusalem, don't awaken love until it what? Until it pleases. You need to know that one. Because you can sit and talk with your young person and say, hey, what that means is you don't need, if you will, to allow yourself to begin to love and, and have intimate feelings towards someone until it's right, until you are of age, and until it's someone who your dad and I, moms if you're having a conversation with your daughters or your mom and I dads if you're having a conversation with your sons can say that yeah this person seems right for you they they seem to love the Lord and 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 what yada 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 y'all get the point it makes for great conversations great conversation as a single dad I'm not having a conversation I didn't want to have by myself I'm like that you know but it's good stuff so we need to we need to understand it because what 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 here's the thing it's a subtle thing for you to then compromise and allow them to marry a non-believer because you don't want to stand your ground or hurt their feelings um, or you think you're going to push them away. But you have those comments. While he's teaching Song of Solomon, you keep up with it. You can go online and listen to it. And then you can, you can begin to say, hey, what did you think about 
uh, verse 7. Y'all in chapter 2, right? What do you think about verse 7? What do you think that means? You know, and, and so and so and so and you can have that while you're driving down the road to get ice cream. Remember Deuteronomy 6 says, while you're on the way, you know, while you're sitting in the house, you can say, what do you think about that? I don't know what you think about it, they'll say. They'll say, I think it's this, you know, yada, 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 you know. And then you can use 1 Kings teaching over here to say, well, here's why the Bible says we shouldn't do it. Because it always ends in a place you don't want it to go. And so Solomon has a little issue going on in his heart. Here's what Deuteronomy 17 says, verse 14 through 17 on your screen, I believe. It says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it. In other words, when I, when I cause you to, to finally dwell in a good place where I'm leading you and you're doing good and, and, and say, I will seek a king over me like the other nations. God told them they were going to do it and they did it in 1 Samuel. Y'all remember that? He's just he's a perfect parent. Kids don't like to listen. God said, when you get there and desire a king, he told them all that time before that they were going to desire a king when they got to the na- in, into the land. Anyway, and it says, I will set up a king over me like the other nations all around. And you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. In other words, when it happens, let me choose one from among the brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you because your foreign king will lead you away from me even who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. He shouldn't be covetous, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In other words, God was telling them back in the book of of Deuteronomy, I know where you're going to head. There's nothing new under the sun. And I, God, know everything. That's basically what he's saying. And I know you're going to do this anyway. So I'm telling you right up front, because you're going to be rebellious, make sure you do these things. Everybody got it? You can do the same thing as parents because we are we already we've walked some ground now. We know where the where the pitfalls are. Like like David said to Solomon, you know, watch out for Joab. Shimei is not good. You follow what I'm saying? And it's our it's our responsibility as parents to to be a part of that process. And so he's got some issues in his heart that are going to come to the surface. But let's stay, the, let's stay the course right now. So he marries this woman. He brings her, um, it says at the end of verse 1 here, it says, then he brought her to the city of David, notice, until he finished building his own house and the house of the Lord um, and the wall all around Jerusalem. The order of that should really be until he finished building the Lord's house. And Solomon was already a king. He lived in the palace. I mean, he had kind of everything he needed. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Um, he didn't need to focus on his house first, but I'll, I'll leave that alone. Um, but it is important, I think, that we should always, and throughout Scripture, there's always a need to solidify and make sure that the central place of worship is taken care of in our lives before we take care of other things. For us, spiritually, it means that there's nothing more important than you making sure that your heart is right with the Lord. And so many times people um, prioritize their lives around other things. They'll, they'll move somewhere without even considering whether there is a church there for them to get connected to. 
And then when you see them down the road, they've drifted away from the Lord and they're a little dry because they didn't make sure that that was in place. And so as believers, what we need to always do, and I know I'm getting off track, but we need to always make our decisions based upon um, the fact that we feel we're being led of the Lord to do this thing. Because if he leads you anywhere, he's going to provide what you need. Does that make sense? He's always going to provide what you need. And he's always going to ensure that there is going to be a way for you to stay connected with him and the body of Christ. And that's amazing. I look around the room at all these people from New York, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, and, and, and California. It used to be just California. Now it's kind of getting balanced out a little bit. We need that because that California influence, boys. <laughs> I'm just picking. Um, and it's very, very interesting to see how God mixes up our congregation. Our congreg- it's, it's wonderful. Verse 2. Y'all ready? We got to keep get moving. So verse 2 says, meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. There was no house built for, the na- uh, built for the name of the Lord until those days, meaning that there was a time period when they didn't really have it. Now, they did have it in Shiloh. Remember when Samuel, the little boy, was ministering before the Lord in Shiloh. He was ministering before Eli. And so they had a central place. If you remember the story of Hannah, y'all remember Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel? She was barren. So from year to year, her husband, he would take the family and his two wives and they would travel to Shiloh to to worship. So they kind of had a central place. But Eli was a horrible king, didn't discipline his boys. A lot of things happened. The Ark of the Covenant, they went to war. They shouldn't have taken the Ark. They took it anyway. It got captured by the Philistines. A lot of bad things happened. And they really didn't have a way, a place, a central place to worship for a while. So this was a compromise that God was allowing temporarily until Israel had a central place to worship the Lord again. And I think it's very important that we we take note of that. It's not that this is the way God wanted it to be, but he allowed people to sacrifice to him in different places until then. But it's not his desire because there's danger in that. Deuteronomy 12, verse 13 and 14, if you take a note, says this. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I command you. So God desires unity within the body as far as worshiping in that one place that he would provide. And so we're going to see where that place really is as we get into Uh, Verse four and five, it was in Gibeon because at this point, uh, the tabernacle is there in Gibeon. Um, So they had a central place, but they're worshiping notice in high places. So this is something that needs to get dealt with. It's not good for the worship to be scattered. God's people to be scattered all over the land in that way. So we'll talk about this as we go through. Um, But I will say the beauty, the beauty of this for us under the new covenant is that we don't have to worry about that anymore, a central place. You remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well? Y'all remember that whole story? Y'all mind if I just uh, go there for a minute? Okay, so I think it's on the screen. We don't have to turn there. It says in verse 19, uh, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Why did she say that? Because Jesus told her, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands and the one you're living with is not your husband. It's like, whoa, you must be a prophet. You know, so then she asked him a question. She says, well, our father, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Remember, they're in Samaria. 
And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. What Jesus said to her, this is the beautiful part for us. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Worship the Father. Uh, Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I love that. How does that work? 1 Corinthians 6 says, or do you not know that you, verse 19 through 20, yeah, on the screen, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I love that. So now for us who are born again, the spirit of God lives where? In us. And so I can worship him. Here's the beauty about the new, new covenant. I can worship him everywhere. I love that because I used to worship on the job. You know, you ain't got to play music. You ain't got to have a bunch of people around you. You know, you can, you, you literally, you're worshiping him with your whole life, you know. Um, but, but it's because of spirit and truth. I'm praising God. You can praise him in your vehicle. You can praise him everywhere. We don't have to get to a building anymore. Ain't that wonderful? And so that way, when you finally get to the place where the saints are meeting and you contribute your lifestyle of worship with everybody else's, then it really begins to bless God. And so I love the fact that we don't have to worry about that anymore. All right, I need to, I need to cover some ground now. So verse three says, and Solomon loved the Lord Walking in the statues of his father. So this is the truth. He loves the Lord at this point. Remember, I showed you that there were some indicators in his heart that he had issues with women. But, but right now he's, he's new as king. He loves the Lord. He's walking in the statue of his father, David, except notice that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places, plural. I think that as David got older, these things began to happen. They didn't happen on his watch when he, was, when he had his vigor about him. Everybody understand what I'm saying? David never sacrificed in all these multiple places. You know, David, David I mean, one time you go back a little further before David um, was unable to function anymore. Um, David understood worship in this. David was told to go ahead and burn, um, make an offering unto the Lord because David had made a mistake by doing a census and there was a plague in Israel and David was repenting. And so David had to go and sacrifice um, on the threshing floor of Arnon as he was told to. And so David went there to the farmer uh, and said, hey, um, I want to buy your threshing floor to make a burnt offering to the Lord. And the farmer Arnon said, nope, I will give it to you, David, because you're a mighty man. You have led Israel well, and you want to worship our God? He, you can have the threshing floor. And David said, absolutely not. I will not worship God with something that costs me nothing. David understood that worship was tied to sacrifice, just like Abraham did when he had to go up on the mountain and he was getting ready to offer his son. So David purchased the the threshing floor, and there he made a burnt offering to the Lord in obedience to the Lord. But David didn't sacrifice at high places. Now, now let me explain. High places were basically um, these elevated places throughout the land. Um, The pagans used them because the pagans felt like wherever you sacrifice, it needed to be high. Because if you get high, you get closer to God. Does that make sense? 
okay, that's what people think. I don't want to get close to God. I want to get up on the mountain and, and worship him because then I'm closer to him. We now, New Testament believers, we understand that it doesn't matter. I can worship in the valley because <laughs> the spirit is within me. Physical location doesn't matter anymore. So they were doing all of these things. And so it's kind of a, a part of the, the, the ancient culture, if you will. But David never involved himself in any of those things. One, David wouldn't worship where pagans that worshiped other gods. David didn't, he, would, he just wouldn't do that. Um, and I do think that there, there is an important part of that, um, but we don't need to get caught up in it. Many Calvary chapels have started in very odd places. Like we used to um, do a Bible study in a bar in the winter because we, we met outside during the um, spring and the summer, but then it got cold and we needed to get, the pe- get people inside, so we went inside the bar. So there you got the fifth of this and the fifth of that and the fifth of the other and the, all on the wall while we're having a Bible study, you know. Um, we didn't care. We were studying the Bible. The bar wasn't actually open. They weren't serving yet, but, you know, big deal. Um, I think Calvary Chapel down in maybe Fort Lauderdale started in a, in a funeral home. You know, imagine that, you know, ministering to the living amongst the dead, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, does, it really doesn't matter because when, in this new covenant, when we show up, the place is now holy because the people of God are there. Okay. So um, that's what we know and understand now. But David, David didn't do that. He didn't worship in those places because his God was separate from all of those things. Um, so this, this word here in this verse, verse three, except, it means something there. It means that there's an exception already there with Solomon's life. There's some subtle compromises that Solomon is willing to make that his dad wouldn't make. Everybody catching that? And I think that in our own hearts, from a New Testament perspective, the Bible tells us not to defile our own conscience. So there, there needs to be a spiritual standard that you set for yourself. In other words, there, there are things that you know that, hey, I don't, I don't want to do this thing. Because I feel like if I do this thing, I am, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not honoring my God. And, 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 the, and the thing about it is we have liberty in Christ, right? So there are things that maybe David can do that I can't or that I can do that Mike can't, you know. And, and that's why Paul says, hey, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be bought under the bondage of any. Does that make sense? So you kind of have to have those things in your life, you know. When, and the thing is, when the Holy Spirit convicts you on something, that's when you need to pay very close attention. Because he knows. It's just like God told them what they were going to do before they did it. And he told Solomon, he warned Solomon what was going to happen to him. The Holy Spirit knows where you are going to trip up and fall. So he warns you. He convicts you. Those are the places that you have to say, hey, now this is off limits to me. I, I told you all the story about when I stopped drinking, right? Okay, nah, because I don't want to have to tell it again. Most of you heard it before. Okay, good. You heard it. I won't tell you again. All right. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Some people hadn't heard it yet. <laughs> All right, so real quick, so I, I had already, I was already saved, filled with the Holy Spirit and walking with the Lord, um, and I wasn't drinking hard stuff, but, you know, with football comes beer, okay, and certain things, beer goes with them. So I was at my mother's house, and I was steaming crab legs, and when you steam crab legs, you pour stuff in there with it, you know, and I think I had a Corona, and so I'm steaming the crab legs, and as I pour it, I pour it in, but you always save a little bit for yourself. <laughs> and 
And, um, but God was really working in my life at that point. My family was hearing about, you know, Kevin's really changed and these things are going on. And so my cousin, Milton, looked at me and he said, hey, cuz, tell me about your church. I heard God is doing big things in your life. While he's asking me that question, the corona is up like this. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that very moment and said, hey, this is now contrary to what I'm doing in your life. And you can't, you can't do both with where I'm going to take you. I had a decision, you know, because it's not sin to have a swallow of something like that. But for me and where he was taking me, it was no longer, it no longer fit anymore. That was the last time I had any alcohol. So it's when the Holy Spirit speaks to you that you got to say, hey, it's time to stop. It's time to change. It's time to do something different. Okay, so Solomon got some subtle compromises in his life. We'll see how it all plays out as we continue to go. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, now, king, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Now, I will say this to his defense. If you look at 1 Chronicles 16.39, I don't have it on the screen. Just make a note of it. The tabernacle of the Lord was in Gibeon at this point. So he's at the right place now. This is the place where the tabernacle is. So this is really the only place where they should make, be making offerings to the Lord. They shouldn't be at high places. They should be at the, the, the high place in Gibeon until Solomon gets the temple built. Everybody understand? So this is the compromise that Israel is making now. In other words, they kind of got comfortable. When we didn't have a place settled, you know, we were allowed to kind of go to some places that were convenient. But now the tabernacles in Gibeon, we shouldn't do that anymore. It may take me an extra, you know, few hours to get down to Gibeon with my sacrifice, but that's where I should be sacrificing to the Lord. You follow what I'm saying? And so because worship is sacrifice. All right. Now, Verse 5, we get into this famous part here. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask, explanation mark, ask. It's like it, it, it was a dream, but God can show up in your dream, and he probably smoke, spoke in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense where it rocked Solomon a little bit. Whoa, that's the voice of the Lord. He's got that explanation mark. Ask, what shall I give you? And so the Lord is being very gracious with him at this point. He's a new king. Um, he's trying to do right. There are some subtle compromises. But God, God understands those things. He can work with us. He can speak with us. What he's looking for us to do is to hear his voice and be obedient, like with the drinking story. Like God, God was working with me. God was good. We were okay. You know, he hadn't dealt with me on that yet at that point. Everything was okay. He was speaking to me. But when he spoke it to me, that was when it was important. Does everybody get that? Okay, and so God appears and he says, ask, what, what shall I give you? I love this. It's like a father to a son. Hey, I want to bless you. What do you want? There's a bit of testing there, but, but it's a blessing to see God interact with him. Verse 6, and Solomon said, understanding somehow that God is speaking to him, he responds, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth in righteousness, in uprightness of heart with you, you have continued this great kindness to him and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. I love the language, every word, the Holy Spirit's writings, or every jot and tittle means something. Solomon is very humble here. He recognizes that he didn't have to be on the throne. 
you know, and it was almost not him on the throne, if y'all remember the story. So he understands that I'm here because of you. And this is the big one. I'm not just here because of you. I'm here because of my father's faithfulness to you. Sometimes we fail to realize that. Sometimes we fail to remember that maybe if you come from a family where there are people in your family who were walking with the Lord and serving the Lord and praying for you, that you may not be where you are based upon you were good and God loved you. He loved you, but it could be like, I, I don't think I'm standing here because of me. And my grandfather prayed for this. He prayed with tears for this. I think I'm standing here because of him. I'll find out when I get there. You know? <laughs> and so he recognizes that. But what that should encourage is every parent and every grandparent and every uncle and every aunt in the room. What it should say is that, you know, God honors our prayer and tears for those whom we love, for our children and our grandchildren. He hears it. You walk faithfully with him. You be the example. You lift them up in prayer and you stay the course with that until God does a work in them. You know, and, and that's something that we got to remember every day. So now he says, verse seven says, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out and how to come in. I love the language there. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. He says, look, I'm a little child. It, the, the, the language there implies I'm young and inexperienced is all he's saying. He's not a child. He's not two years old. He's not 10 years old. He's probably um, late teenagers to 20 to 25, somewhere along there. He's married with a son already. You get my point? But he knows. And, and remember, for Israel, this is common. You know, men didn't start becoming priests until they were 30 and they retired at 50. So below that is still considered a man who's young and inexperienced. Does that make sense? We don't think about that anymore. We, you know, today, 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds do a lot of things. But in Israel, in some ways, they were still being discipled and trained. You know, God knows better than we do. And so he says, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. In other words, I don't yet know how to do these things of my own. I don't have the experience to be able to go out and come in, speaks of in war. You know, I'm making treaties with Pharaoh because I don't want to go to war with him yet. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's what he's saying. So verse 9, therefore, give your servant the understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked, notice this, long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. So that there is not there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you, which means that Elon Musk is not as wise as Solomon. 
That's what that means. I use him as an example. But you think about anybody you want to think they don't have the wisdom that Solomon has. Yeah, but they're putting stuff in outer space. I don't care. The Bible says that no one would come after him that would have that kind of wisdom. Does it make sense? Jesus obviously is an exception. Okay. <laughs> um, so in verse 13, and I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of your days. And so I love that in a sense. Now, Solomon didn't ask for all of these things, but God gave it to him anyway, because what he did ask for pleased the Lord. Now, Solomon wasn't a poor man. He was already king. He already had the wealth of his father, David, and all of that kind of stuff. But what he lacked was the ability to function as a wise king. And he understood that. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, but I, I like the fact that God said, um, if because you have not, verse 11, asked um, this thing for yourself, he says, and have not asked for long life. I, you know, I guess that's what the normal man would have asked for. Hey, I want to live long. You know, that's what we, we want. And that's what people are looking for. People are looking for the fountain of youth. There's so many things out there, weight loss, healthy eating, juice this, um, go on this mountain, you know, whatever, squeeze the oil out of this nut and apply this. I mean, whatever. I mean, the people got all of this stuff. They just want to live forever. All these workout plans, that's what people want. God says, everybody's asking me for long life. You have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches. You know, he wasn't trying to get wealthier nor have you asked for the life of your enemies. In other words, kill my enemies. His father, David, asked for those things. David would say, Lord, break their teeth. You know, <laughs> David said, Lord, kill my enemies because he had so many. Um, but Solomon didn't ask for any of these things. He wants, he wants the wisdom to lead God's people the right way. So there's a good heart here. So God says, because of that, I'm going to make you the wisest man to ever live. And I'm going to give you riches and honor because you'll be able to handle it. And I think it's, it's, it's fitting that he did this. And I think if, if, if many of us, you've got to ask yourself this question. If God said to you, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you, what would you ask for? You know, I think that with Solomon, to get the riches and all of these other things without wisdom, Solomon's the one who wrote. He, he alludes to the fact that a fool and his money eventually get, they go different directions. You know, so but wisdom always gives you the ability to accomplish other things. Does that make sense? So I think that we see something here. And maybe if you search your heart, what is it? You already have eternal life. So if God were to give you the ability to ask, what would you ask for? Something that you need to think about. I think there's some lessons here that we can learn. You see, Solomon asking for wisdom was a, uh, uh, a, a request that wasn't selfish. I mean, in the sense of by him having wisdom, God's people would then be blessed. A lot of times when I think about asking God for something, I always wonder, well, OK, if I was God, you know, I would I would want to know how is what you're asking me for going to bring me glory? Like, what's your motive? What are you going to do with it? You ever thought about that? If I'm asking God for something, I want to say, okay, well, then how, how am I going to be able to bring him glory and how are other people going to get blessed? Because that's, de that's what he desires for my life. So I need, when I go before him, I, I, I try to already have that thought out. It's kind of like with leadership. Don't bring me a problem unless you bring solutions with it. If you, if you bring me a problem with no solutions, I'm just going to send you back to figure it out and we'll talk later. Because, <laughs> you know, the, so the same thing with God. God, I, I'm in need of this. 
And I even talked to him about it, like, Lord, you know, this, I think, would be a blessing to me now and what I'm doing and would bring you glory and it would be a blessing to whoever, you know, and I got to think about what you're called to do. Just a side note. Okay. All right. Y'all doing okay? We'll wrap this part up. So, um, so then verse 14, he says, so if you, and we hear this over and over, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, and this is what David had charged them with already, um, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days even. Whoa. And, then, and, and that is in keeping with the, with the law to some degree. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant. The, the Ark was in Jerusalem. The tabernacle was in Gibeon. Um, the Ark is in Jerusalem because that, that's where they're going to build the actual temple. So he comes to Jerusalem, he stands before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. So everybody now is being blessed. Um, Solomon is joyous in the Lord because the Lord has spoken to him and shown up and given him a word. And so now he's celebrating that. Now, this next section is something that we can go through pretty fast. But this now is going to be, and I think the Holy Spirit is putting this here as an example of the type of wisdom that Solomon received from the Lord. So y'all got a few minutes? All right, tighten up your seatbelt. We're going to run through it really quick. Now it says, now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. So we got trouble already. So these are prostitutes. Um, They come before the king. And one woman said, oh, king, my lord, because often the king, um, one of the things that the king had to do was make wise judgments within the land, okay? Um, And so the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. You know, they were harlots. So, I mean, the two of them live in the house by themselves. Neither one of them married. But because of their profession, they got pregnant and they had children a couple of days apart from each other. Everybody good? All right. So it happened on the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she kind of rolled over on him and crushed him or somehow killed him and probably. Verse 20. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side. While your maid servant slept and laid him in her bosom and lay her dead child in my bosom. Can you fathom this? Okay. Verse 21. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born because a mother knows her child. There's a bit of instinct there, and, and she examined him, you know, because one thing a mother does when she gives birth and they lay that baby on her, she, she's, I mean, I've watched it. She holds, she sings, she's looking at him. She, I, mean, she's, I mean, she knows everything about the child. I mean, mothers, am I right? Yeah. Amen, y'all know. And so, verse 22, then the other woman said, no, but the living child, 
Where am I at here? No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And they fighting. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So they're arguing before the king. The king don't know whose son is whose. So the king said to one, uh, said, excuse me, and the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, is the dead one, and my son is the living one. So then the king says, well, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. Now, everybody's wondering, what in the world does he want a sword for? I mean, you know, these women, they're not warriors. You don't need to protect yourself. What do you want, Solomon? And the king said, divide the living child in two and give her and give half to one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son and said, oh, my Lord. Give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Whoa. That has to be divine wisdom because I wouldn't have tried that. Because <laughs> what if they both agreed? And I'm like, I'm guilty of killing the child, you know. <laughs> but it, it, it was God's wisdom upon him and he applies that wisdom. And I think it's also God's way of elevating him and establishing him and all of the things that he is doing. Um, because Solomon knew from wisdom that no mother is going to stand by and watch her child kill. That was one thing he could count on. He understood. I think part of his wisdom was understanding the, 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 the human nature. You know, I think part of wisdom is that, understanding human nature, um, and then applying that understanding in the situation to be able to navigate difficult things. And praise God that we, the New Testament saints, we, we, we got that truth, but we also have the Holy Spirit in us, which can give us wisdom like Solomon had in certain situations. And we know that, Amen. And we can we can sometimes operate in wisdom that we don't have because God has wisdom. And the Bible says in James, we know it. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. Y'all remember that? Let's end with that verse. You fly over to chapter one, James chapter one with me really quick. We'll end there for tonight and pick all of this back up next week. Lord willing, if the trumpet doesn't blast before then. And if so. We can ask Jesus to teach it while we're in heaven for us. All right. So in James, I uh, found myself in James this week, actually, um, the previous verses. But verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, the beautiful thing about this is James is speaking to believers. So he's saying to believers who have the Holy Spirit, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, almost like Solomon did, who gives to all liberally. He gives freely and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, God wants to freely give us wisdom, so we should ask it from him. But here's the, the thing. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Uh, Hebrews says the same thing. Any, uh, if anyone goes to God, he must first believe that he is and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. So we have the living God that we can go to. We have his spirit within us and we can ask for what we are lacking and, and trusting that he will supply it. And I, I believe that part of this is then when you ask, then operate in it. You don't have to sit around on a law waiting for something supernatural to happen. Lord, I need your wisdom in this situation. And as you operate in faith, he supplies wisdom. That's what, that's what used to happen to me on the job all the time. You know, when, when I was working full time in secular, you're going to go to work tomorrow, many of you. Or maybe your parents, you need wisdom with your children. God, if you are walking in faith, operating in faith, doing what God called you to do, and you're asking him for it, you can believe that he is going to manifest it in your life. And you're going to be like, whoa, how did I even come up with that? Well, it was God. Amen. All right. So, um, yes, come on up. We're going to pray. Have uh, at least one worship song before we leave tonight. So, Father, we thank you for, for meeting us here and for taking us through your scripture for opening it, to our, opening it to our hearts, Lord God. I'm sure that there are many things that I didn't say or even think to say that you showed people here in the room and online tonight. And that's beautiful because you teach us according to your spirit. We thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that the things that we need to hold on to would take root in us and that we would be able to apply it in our own lives and we would be able to grow stronger in you as we walk with you, as we glorify you, Lord, in this life you've given us. I pray for everybody here, everywhere they have to go, for work situations, family uh, situations, uh, all of the things that we deal with, you called us to occupy until you come. Give us wisdom, Lord God. Manifest it in our lives in, in ways that would just cause us to glorify you and worship you even the more. And I pray that over everyone in this room, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.